0: If you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. The Old Testament book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is found within the minor prophets section. If you find the gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just turn the other direction and you should run into Habakkuk. In fact, if you run from Matthew, it goes from Matthew to Malachi, then it goes to Zephani, uh, Zechariah, Haggai, Zephaniah, and then you come to Habakkuk. Everyone should be able to say the books of the Bible backwards. We know that within the Bible that we have different sections. In the Old Testament we start off with the five first five books, the books of Moses, which is often called the Pentateuch, the uh, books of the law. After that is the twelve books of history, followed by the five books of poetry, Then we come to five major prophets. And then finally we come to the minor prophets. Now the minor prophets are an important section. Some people neglect them because they feel like because they're called minor they're not important. But they may be minor in size but they're major in message. And they have so much they want to tell us about the Lord and how he works. Now as we come to the book of Habakkuk we know that the book of Habakkuk is a very unusual book. Because most of the minor prophets are addressing a group of people. For example, the book of Obadiah is addressing to the people of Edom. You have the book of Amos, which is a southern preacher who goes up north to go tell those people up north of the truth. We understand that uh, the book of Hosea is written to the people of Israel. However, the book of Habakkuk is unusual because it's a conversation between a prophet and his God. And as God answers back, it starts off where it's almost like reading our own headlines. That as Habakkuk looks at his nation and sees how awful it is, he goes to the Lord in prayer and he says, you see all the violence and nothing's being done about it. God, you can see that even the courts aren't even making right judgments now. You can see everything's messed up. God, what are you going to do about it? And to a surprise, God answered him and says, I'm going to do a work so wonderful... That if I told you, you would say, Nuh-uh, how's that going to work? And God says, "All right, fine. Ye among the heathen. I'm going to send the nation of Babylon to come and destroy your nation. Destroy your temple. To bring you all into bondage. And that's how I'm going to fix things. And the prophet of Habakkuk said, what? No, 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 where is this going to work? They're worse than we are. And God says, I told you you wouldn't believe me. And God says, I know that they're worse than you. Remember, the main problem of the Hebrew people at this time is that they kept serving other gods other than the God Jehovah. They kept serving Baal. They kept serving Ashtaroth. They kept serving Ishtar. They kept serving all these other gods. And so what God did in order to cure their problem of serving other gods, is they put them in a nation that served even more gods than they did. You said, how does that work? Well, God knows. Because when they came back after 70 years of captivity, they came back the most monotheistic people ever, including today. You go to an Orthodox Jew, they said, there is only one God. And they're pretty insistent on it. See, God fixed them. How does that work? We don't know. We just know that God did it, and he said he's going to do it, and we won't understand. That's how good of a God he is. Well, as the prophet Habakkuk has been talking to God, he says, they're going to be worse than us. And God says, I know. And so the prophet Habakkuk says, listen, I don't know how it's going to work, but I trust you. And so to start off in Habakkuk chapter 2, the prophet Habakkuk says, I'm waiting to see what God is going to say to me, and how he's going to reprove me, and how I'm going to respond. And then God goes on and begins to describe the Babylonians. And he begins to list a series of woes. Remember that in the Bible when you see the word woe, it carries the idea of cursed. And he goes and lists five curses that are on the Babylonian people. Now what is happening is that God has, has always done this. Is that whenever God has to chastise his people, he uses a rod, but then he breaks the rod. When God had the the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. be chastened by the Assyrian nation, he had the Assyrian nation broke. Then when he uses the Babylonians in the future where Habakkuk is speaking in 586 B.C., In 70 years, he takes that rod of the Babylonians and he breaks them. And what God is doing is he's listing the charges against the Babylonians. Why they're going to be destroyed. And so notice with me in the book of Habakkuk. The book of Habakkuk chapter number 2, and we're going to kind of catch it up in mid-story. I was just giving you some context to where we're at so you're not completely lost. But the book of Habakkuk chapter number 2. The book of Habakkuk chapter number 2, and let's pick it up starting at verse number 10. The book of Habakkuk chapter number 2 and verse number 10, we could see that God is starting to list the woes, the curses, and he comes to this third woe found here. Notice with me, in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 10, thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people and hast sinned against thy soul. For the stone shall cry out of the wall, and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. Woe unto him that buildeth a town with blood, and established a city by iniquity! Behold, Is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire, and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity? For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. And if you have not marking things in your Bible, would you actually mark the entire uh, verse of Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse number 11. The book of Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 11 where it says this, the stone shall cry out of the wall and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. So with the Lord's help we'll kind of condense this title here, when stones speak and timbers answer. When stones speak and timbers answer now again we're seeing as god has pronouncing judgment upon the babylonian people and he's listing these five woes these five curses maybe perhaps we could take a quick look and see at these great woes these great curses here notice what he says starting in verse number um let me see if i can catch him. verse number six in the it says, shall not all these take up a parable against him and taunting parable against him and say, woe unto him that increases that which is not his? How long to him that ladeth with thick clay? But I feel like I'm missing a woe. That's right, but we'll catch up. Verse number six, then once again, as we come into verse number nine, woe unto him that coveteth An evil covetousness to his house. So in verse number 6. We could see that he wants those things that are not his. And verse number 9. It bounces off that same time. That it says woe unto him that coveteth with evil covetousness. And last week we talked about covetousness. In verse number Twelve woe unto him that buildeth a town with blood and establisheth a city by iniquity we 'll cover this in just a moment. We see another woe in verse number fifteen: Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink and putteth thy bottle to him and makest him drunken also that thou mayest look upon the nakedness. and We could see this woe here that ties drunkenness with immorality, and we could see that theme all throughout the Bible. And then we could see in verse number 19, the last woe. Woe unto him that saith to the wood, A Ar- rock wake, and to the dumb stone, Arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there's no breath in the midst of it. And here they're setting up false gods. But what we see in the woe that we're covering today is this idea here that as the Babylonian people have been trying to build themselves great, Because they've been doing it without regard to God, that their life is going to be empty. And verse number 11 this is poetical language that is saying, The stone shall cry out of the wall, and the beam shall, the timber shall answer it. Meaning that everything is going to pronounce that their life was a waste. They worked so hard, but their whole life is a testimony that it's sinned. Against God. What a great principle that we learn here. That some people try to gain a position in the wrong way. And they do it without regard to God. That's going to happen out that they will never be happy. Someone could work so hard and hurt other people to get to the top position. And whatever career they want. And it does not make them happy. Someone can twist and connive and manipulate and get to the place where they have all the money they feel like they need and they're not happy. Here we have the Babylonians who are at the zenith, the height of their power. Remember we described this Babylonian empire to you before. That even the city of Babylon, that it had walls that surrounded the city and the city if you were to walk around the perimeter of the city, it would be 60 miles. This was such a big and huge city that it bragged about its walls. Its walls stood over 40 feet high and was so wide, you could take four four four-horse-drawn chariots and ride them side by side along the wall. It was so thick. That inside of the... um, Babylon's palace, Nebuchadnezzar's palace, his palace uh, stood on two square miles. I would like to have a home that was two square miles. That's a big house. And in the midst of this was the fabled hanging gardens, which at that time was considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the world that... Uh, Some say that it was actually built on the remains of the Tower of Babel. And that he had built this to be a lush garden for his Persian bride. Who had missed the green of her homeland. And was stuck out in the middle of the desert. And So he had this hanging gardens with all these trees and greenery. Basically a zoo for plants. Where you could see all of this to please her. This was a, a zenith of a power. And yet... It was not enough. They went and destroyed all the cities around them and subjugated. They took the people of those places and transported them thousands of miles. And they separated them. And their tactic was is that they take a people group. They'll send some here and some here, some here. They'll take another one send some here, some here, some here. With a purpose that no matter where you go, you don't have a united people. You have different people of different cultures. And they won't work together to overthrow the Babylonian Empire. And this was their plan to make themselves great at the expense of others. But in the midst of all of this, it did not satisfy. It was not enough. It did not fulfill them. It did not make them happy. And God says, listen here, the stones are going to speak of this emptiness. And the timbers are going to answer. Of how it was not enough. And so if you don't mind with that backdrop here. Let's examine this text a little bit more. And the first thing I'd like to show you is the glory can turn into shame. That glory can turn into shame. Notice with me in verse number 10. Thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people. So here, as they've been building towns with blood, the Bible talks about, as they had established a city by iniquity, verse number 12, notice the woe. Woe unto him that buildeth a town with blood and established a city by iniquity. That God is pronouncing judgment because they exploited people. The word exploiting means to use people to accomplish what you want to get accomplished. No matter what it costs to those people. And so they're exploiting other people. They're using other people's work, other people's abilities, and they're using it for themselves, not caring about the cost. How many people had to be sacrificed in order to have someone else to have their own benefit? And it does not satisfy that way. The Babylonians are filled with glory. But God says that the glory of man is temporal. That it fadeth away like a flower. It just kind of wilts away. It's there and then it's gone. We know that the Babylonians, they're going to go off the scene. That the Babylonian empire is only going to last 70 years. That Nebuchadnezzar himself is going to realize how empty it is. And that it doesn't satisfy. Even his grandson Beth Is at the place where he's rejoicing and saying, How great things are. And then he saw the writing on the wall. Literally, the stone spoke. He saw this writing on the wall. He didn't know what it meant, but the Bible says that his knees shook and he wet himself. (laughs) He was that scared. And he said, Please get someone to tell us. Tell me something. And they bring Daniel in, and he says, Daniel, we heard about how you helped my grandfather, and you, you were able to interpret dreams. Tell me, and I'll make you the third ruler of the kingdom. Daniel says, Don't even bother, because what that's saying is that tonight, all Babylon's going to be destroyed. And we explain to you how Cyrus the Great had diverted the Euphrates River. And then he walked underneath the city of Babylon, walked through the two leaf gates. By the way, that was predicted in Isaiah 44 and 45 in 70 or 700 AD for an event that happened in 536 BC. I had someone last night, just last night, that was saying, How can I know that the Bible is true? Well, one of the greatest ways to know the Bible's true is fulfilled prophecy. That we can look through history and say, look, God predicted it in 700 BC. And then in 536 BC, it accomplished. And by the way, he called Cyrus by name. One of four people in the Bible who was called by name before they were even born. God knew his name, who he was going to do. It says in that prophecy in Isaiah 45 that the two-leaf gates were going to be uh, open. These two lead gates covered the uh, bottom of the city uh, where the river went through. And the guards, when they saw the river dried up, they said, You know what? Forget this. They opened up the, the gates, walked away, and left it unguarded. And so, as Beth Shazzar is having this party and seeing the writing of the wall, Cyrus the Great's walking underneath the city, and they take Babylon, this great city with these great walls that are so thick and so high. Without firing a shot. And that's exactly what God said was going to happen. Here it says that their glory is going to come to shame. It didn't satisfy. It left nothing. There was nothing there. They exploited all these people. And it came to naught. So we could see that the glory is turned into shame. A second thing that we see is that gain for them was nothing but sin. Gain for them was nothing but sin. Notice with me at verse number 10 again. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 10. Thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people and hast sinned against thy soul. You know, everything that they tried to gain just ended up more sin. All of our gain is sin if we've neglected God. Even Jesus makes mention of this in the gospel record of Mark chapter 8 verse 36 where Jesus said what for what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul. Think about someone who has dedicated his entire life to the neglect of his family to the neglect of his livelihood to become the richest person he knows. But he sits alone in an empty, broken house. His family hates him. He has no friends. Sits in that house and he can't stand it. He sinned against his own soul. He did everything and it didn't satisfy. Think about someone who clawed to the top of their business and they stepped on everyone they possibly could and backstabbed and they get to the very top and it's miserable to them. You know, some of the coldest people I know are people in business who have no care about other people. Now, I'm not saying business is wrong. We understand that if you do it with regard to God and allow God to bless you and you honor him all the way that God can satisfy you. We're not saying business is wrong. We're saying when you exploit people and step on their necks and do everything you can to get to the top, your gain is to the neglect of your soul. Because what's even worse than the emptiness is that you're going to have to stand before God and give an account for everything that you've done in your life. For someone who's neglected God and said, I don't need God. You're going to stand before a real God. I was talking with someone the other day and they were trying to say, Well, you know, I think you could believe whatever you want. Religion's this and that's fine. And, uh, you know, people could believe whatever they want. Sure, they can. But that doesn't erase that there's a real God that you'll have to face. There is a real God. And you're going to have to give an account. You know, this principle is really given in the book of Ecclesiastes. In the book of Ecclesiastes, you have Solomon, who was the wisest man, who had all the wealth. He didn't just study something, he became an expert in it. He just didn't study animals, he became a zoologist. He just didn't study plants, he became a botanist. He says, I had every pleasure you could ever imagine. And he says, the conclusion of the whole matter, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Everything under the sun is vanity. The phrase everything under the sun is a poetical way of saying without regard to God. And the word vanity just means empty. And he says the conclusion of the whole matter. As I, Solomon, look back, I'm the richest man. I'm the wisest man. I'm the smartest man. I have all the pleasures, all the wealth. And all I could say is these last years when I haven't looked at God and haven't regarded God, all I could say is my life is empty. 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 What he did is that all that gain was nothing but sin. He sinned against his own soul and he sinned against a great God who wanted something more for him. He wanted something more. Many people have tried to better themselves, but in doing so, they've neglected the Lord Jesus Christ, his church, and the Bible. And when they arrive at the top, they have lost their family, their joy. And the Christian fellowship that they once knew. This kind of success is nothing but sin. But then we come to one last thing here. Is that God cannot be silent. God cannot be silent. We know that the Babylonians would not worship the God of Judah. They had chosen their own gods. But God had said, I'll speak through the stones in your walls. And I'll cry out and the timbers will answer. He says, my voice will be heard. I know some people who cannot stand being by themselves. I know some people, they have to have something always distracting. Because as soon as there's silence, God starts speaking. They don't have a Bible there, but they are so convicted in their soul. And God is trying to speak out to them. God is trying to speak to them. And they're miserable because they don't want God's voice. Miserable. God will not be silent. You understand there is nowhere you can go where God is not there. Let me prove it to you. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, and if you don't have Psalm 139 marked in your Bible, may I encourage you that you need to mark this psalm. This is an important psalm. Psalm 139, it should be one of those psalms where as soon as that psalm is uh, said, you know exactly what's in it. This is one of those important chapters of the Bible. Notice if you don't mind, in Psalm 139, Psalm 139. And notice with me as we just kind of walk through this passage quickly. In Psalm 39, verse 1, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou hast known my down sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar of off. And verse number two, it says, He knows when you lay down, he knows when you get up, and he knows everything you think. You know that's a comforting thing and a frightening thing at the same time. How would you like to have all of your thoughts recorded and broadcast for everyone to hear? Would you like that? I mean, either. (laughs) But God knows everything you think. Notice in verse 3. Thou compasseth my path and my lying down. Thou art acquainted with all of my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue... But lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid the hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot obtain it. Psalmist pauses and says, hey, this is blowing my mind to think that you know everything. You know every word that's come in my mouth. You know everywhere I've been. You know everywhere I've been you know everything about me. Such knowledge, it's too wonderful. I can't process it to understand that you're always there and you know everything about me. There's nothing to be hidden. Verse number seven, whither shall I go from thy spirit and whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, thou art there there if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me you understand there is nowhere you can go where God is not there of course God is in heaven but did you know that God owns hell Satan does not own hell in fact Satan is not in hell and Satan does not want to go to hell Because when he goes to hell, he's a prisoner there. He is going to be punished. And you understand that someone who hates God so much that they want to be away from him, even hell will not escape you from the presence of God. In fact, the presence of God is going to be so manifest down there that people are going to be forever convicted of their sins without the ability of getting right. God is there. There is nowhere where you can go where God is not there. And that God will not make himself known. That even the stones will speak. And the timbers will answer. Notice as it goes on. Verse number 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me. Even the night shall be a light about me. When you're all alone in your house. All by yourself. Under your covers, God still sees you. That's a comforting thought and a frightening thought. It's comforting if you are falling in love with the Lord and you're trusting in him. Oh, that's a comforting thought. Oh, but if you're away from God, there is no hiding and he sees everything that you do. He is there. Notice as it goes on (laughs) in verse 12. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. And the darkness and the light are both alike to thee. For thou hast possessed my reins and have covered me in my mother's womb. You understand, God even saw you when you were in your mother's womb. And he made you. In fact, notice what he says in verse 14. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. You understand that even a baby in the mother's womb, God is there. He sees it. There is nowhere that man can go that he is not away from God. And for a Christian, that's a wonderful thing because God sees us and God can still lead us no matter where we're at and that God can still speak. But even if someone is away from God and doesn't want God in their life, God is still there and the timbers will, or the stones will speak and the timbers will answer. Even without a Bible in front of their face, God will still be trying to get their attention. And for those who don't want God's attention, they're miserable. God cannot be silenced. And so as we come to this thing here, we could see the charge of the Babylonians that as much as they're crushing things underfoot, we could see the backstory of it. they're miserable, and it is not making them happy. They have Nebuchadnezzar with a palace of two miles uh, square miles. Was not enough. It did not satisfy. To have one of the seven wonders of the world. In your house. It was not enough. To be the most powerful empire of that time. Was not enough. It did not satisfy. But let me tell you who does satisfy. Jesus Christ. The Bible says that godliness with contentment. Is great gain. We say this important doctrine, the sufficiency of Christ, that Jesus is enough, that he does satisfy. Sometimes we don't believe that until Jesus is all we have. But let me tell you, Jesus is enough, the sufficiency of Christ. Let me tell you the best thing that you could do in your life is not to become the best it's just to become closer to the Lord Jesus Christ and allowing Him to place you where you need to be. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bachhouse, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ is your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness.